So we've been talking about uh, the river in Ezekiel 47 as it flows from the throne room and flows first um, ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep. And then it was a river that you could not walk in, but you had to swim in. And so we finished um, ankle deep and knee deep. And today we are at that place where in Ezekiel 47, verse 4, I think, it says that, and then the man took me further into the river, another 1,500 or 1,700 feet, and he brought me to a place where the water was waist deep. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And we said every time we started on this topic that stepping into this river moves you from your measure to the fullness of God. And what we mean by that is, on your best day, there's only so much you can do at the highest level of your skill, your ability, your gifting, your natural talent. But stepping into this river, and if you learn how to do it, will bring you into a place where you operate out of the measure of God, not out of your best. Because after a while, we as believers um, have this tendency to uh, default into this is how well I can operate. Uh, so in my case, it might be this is how well I can teach, or this is how well I can hear, or this is how well I can do this. And then God says, sure, you have a gifting, you have an ability, you have learned things from me. But if you keep walking into this river, which is basically the life of the Spirit and the way I tell you to walk in it, you will, regardless of how talented or gifted you are, you'll switch from being the best Jacob you can be to the best God-empowered Jacob that you can be. And it makes a heck of a lot of difference, and the world profits. So we've gone through ankle and knee deep, and now we're talking about waist deep. Waist deep water, here's the, here's the thing with waist deep water. Waist deep water is when, I, when you can't see the bottom. Waist deep water is when you can't see the bottom, and you can't fathom if the next step that you take is going to be level or uneven. That's the problem with waist deep water, right? Eh? Till it's ankle deep, things in life can be sorted out. But it comes to a place where God says, hey, now that you walk the way you walked, can I take you deeper where you have no way of figuring out what the next step looks like? Where you have no idea of whether the next step is just a gra- gradient or whether it's, a, um, whether it's some kind of a pit that you might walk into. Now you can't see what is around. And that's where God wants to take us. And so... The question that we asked each time we talked about these different levels is, what does it take to walk in waist-deep water? What does it take to walk in waist-deep water? So that's what we'll be talking about today. But any questions before we go on? It's two things happening, guys, when you think of it. One, God is saying, hey, my spirit can take you places you have no control over. That's what waist-deep water looks like. On the other hand, God is saying, to walk with my spirit, you need to know how. So these are the two things that are happening in our, 
in, in this series. On one hand, God is saying, hey, you want to walk in ankle deep water? Great. My spirit will take you there. But you need to know a few things as to how to do that so that he can take you there. And today we are saying, my spirit can take you places you have no control over. Where you don't know what's going to happen next. My spirit can take you there. And then he is also saying, but to walk with my spirit in places where you have no control, you need to know how. Any questions? Because even though we are believers, we love knowing what's going to happen next. Eh? And then, if we kind of have a rough idea, as long as there's some kind of a, a bleak picture, you can now begin to trust God. And here God is saying, you won't even know what's going to happen next. Want to walk with me? That's what he's inviting us into. But then he says, if you want to walk with me, there are a few things you'll need to know. So this is basically how do we walk in that kind of water. No questions? Nah, I thought we'll stop here. <laughs> yes, Diana. I got to be more careful now with my mom around. Otherwise, I might hear a thing or two once I get home. So, <laughs> what does it take? What does it take to walk in waist deep water? What does it take to walk in waist deep water? The answer is so blooming simple, it sounds like not fun. Like, I thought there'd be a more profound answer. What does it take to walk in waist deep water? Here's the answer, guys. What does it take to walk in waist-deep water? And the answer, according to Moses and according to Jesus, in John 15, verse 10, is, hey, begin to live in the, begin to live out of the secret place of the Most High. Moses starts off Psalm 91 saying, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 15, verse 10. And that kind of explains what the secret place of the Most High is. He says, Jesus says, hey guys, you know what I've done? I've made myself at home in my Father's love. The secret place that Moses talked about, the secret place that David knew, the secret place that Paul talked about when he says, I'm compelled by, I can't be held back I'm, uh, by this love of God that I know. And he talks about it in Romans 5.5. 5. But I love the way Jesus puts it in John 15.10, where he says, guys, come abide with me, just as I have begun to abide with my Father. And by the way, just so you know, I've made myself at home in my Father's love. And so at the end of the day, waist-deep walking is when I become so secure in the Father's love that I don't care if the next step is a chasm that plunges me into deep sea or whether it's even. I don't care that I don't see what's going to happen next. 
I don't care that I have provision or don't have provision. Why? Because I am taken care of by the love of a father that I so deeply have grasped that it, nothing, nothing shakes me anymore. It's so simple that you would think surely it has to be a little more profound when you're in waist deep water. But you find that the deeper you go into God, the simpler it gets. This is not some God who is nebulous and secretive where the deeper you go into him, you get to find um, new mysteries about him. No, the deeper you get into him, the simpler he becomes. Because at the core, God is love. And so the deeper you go, the simpler it becomes. And so today we'll examine what we know in our heads but find it hard to wrap uh, around in our hearts. That how do you get secure in the love of the Father? How do you do it? How do you get secure in the love of the Father? That's basically what we're going to talk about. Because the more secure I am in it, the more I'm sure that I'll be taken care of. And not everybody has had good father-parent experiences, eh? Perhaps some of us had parents or fathers who were scary or unpredictable or untrustworthy. I mean, I was talking to somebody recently about a person who was telling me about their dad and the cruelty that was... This was a guy and the cruelty that was imposed upon him as a kid. And he always grew up being so afraid. So some of us may have had fathers who were scary, parents... Or a parent who was scary, unpredictable, untrustworthy. Oftentimes their love was a contradiction or a transaction or um, it had to be earned and it was just one incident away from um, their anger or disapproval. Why am I bringing this up? Because guys, like it or not, our understanding of God as Father is so skewed by our human experience. We'd like to escape it, but Unfortunately, it is skewed. Or perhaps I had a father or a parent who was willfully absent or indifferent or sometimes sarcastic where everything you did was met with disdain or with a response that was not uplifting. And so what happens then is this is what you begin to expect of God. And occasionally when you figure out that's not who he is, it doesn't last long. But in the midst of all that stands God as Father. And I love this line, I don't know who said it, but it's, it's, it basically says, a twisted copy, a twisted copy does not destroy the original. As in, when you put a paper into the photocopier and it comes out and it looks mangled and damaged, it doesn't matter because the original is not destroyed. The father is different. A twisted copy does not and cannot destroy the original. Keep that in the back of your minds, eh? That regardless of the experience that you may have had with your parent or with your father, this father just ain't like that. I wanted to say that before we examine who he is, eh? So basically we're doing a forensic audit on the father and, uh, I mean, I've gone over this at least eight times in the last two days. I still find it so hard to wrap my head around it because it, it's not real. But that's the, that's the beauty of, of, about the father, right? He's so not real and so real. 
Any questions before we go on? It's really very simple when you think of it. Why wouldn't a child walk unafraid into any situation if he was absolutely confident of someone who says, I will take care of you? This is the secret that Jesus lived out of. I, love the, I mean, I know I'm saying John 15:10 again out of the message. Uh, I have made myself home in my Father's love. Why don't you? He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High. This is not some entry into the Holy of Holies. That, the blood of Jesus will get you there. <laughs> but it's one thing to get there. It's another thing to stay there. Stay there because you so love it. Okay, let's go. I was praying this afternoon, uh, this morning. The Father, as I teach this, could you just make this go so deep into my heart that um, something will happen for me. So, I just pray the same for us, man. Some of these lines I'll write down. Some of the lines you'll have to scribble away or listen to later. So here are things about the Father that if I am able to forever solidify or never doubt in my heart, you'll have such a wonderful pastor and friend and amazing guy you can hang out with. I'm talking about me right now. Okay. So the first thing is, here's, all, all these are statements that God is making. Eh? So it's not me making them, it's the Father saying it to you. I have never turned my back on you. I have never turned my back on you. I have never turned my back on you. Long ago at Acts 29, we had done this thing where Josh just come up. Where um, we talked about how God is a face-to-face -face God. So Josh sits on this, and every time Josh sits, God sees him face-to-face. -face. Josh is upset with God. He turns his back away, and there he is in your face again. He picks up the chair and he goes to one end of the room and there God is already waiting because he knows every move and he's in your face again. Then he decides, that's it, I'm walking out of here and he just walks away and for once we let him go. <laughs> Come back. So, no, so the point is that this God has this amazing ability to be in your face. Eh? He's a face-to-face -face God. He's a God who... I, I just, uh, maybe you should go home and let this sink in that he has never turned his back on you. It's not your experience, but it is the truth. I have never turned my back on you. I have never turned my back on you. I'm always conferring, same, same point, I'm always conferring worth on you through words and actions. Which means that when, when I'm in a really lousy place or when I'm full of resentment against God, perhaps if I listened, I would either hear a loud voice or a whisper that confers worth on me. John 8 verse 10 and 11, they've just got a woman who's been 
caught in adultery and they bring him before bring her before him and the worth that he confers on her restores her i've said this before but what gives a coin that has lost its value is not the coin itself but the seeker when you lose a 10 cent coin under your sofa you don't call the neighbors to recover the coin but if you should call your neighbors to move the sofa to recover the coin or if you should call your neighbors to move the piano as mark and ronda did uh, to find a coin then it's the seeker who gives the coin the value at the end of the day guys here's the difference between jesus offering salvation and we preaching salvation we preach salvation because we think people need rescue jesus gives salvation because he thinks people have value big difference eh Jesus goes looking for people not because he wants to save them or rescue them he goes looking for people because he thinks they are valuable this is where the church completely loses it because the church goes looking for people to save because they need saving and rescuing Jesus does not rescue you because Jesus does not save you because you need rescuing Jesus saves you because you are highly valuable it is the value that causes him to rescue you And once you attach value to a person then it's very hard to be put off because a person has value regardless of how they respond. I remember saying this ages ago. Sometimes when God looks at me he feels he he longs to see a self portrait because I was made in his image. I am made in his image. I am a self-portrait of sorts. I am a self-portrait of sorts because I was made in his image. It's scary to equate yourself like that. But when God made me in his image, he really designed a self-portrait of sorts, of sorts. But he did. Highly valued man. He'll never turn his back on me. Second even when you deserve the consequences of your sin dullness wickedness um disobedience even when you deserve the consequences of your disobedience your dullness your wickedness your sin i refuse look at the words he uses i'll give you scripture for all of them so that this isn't coming out of my um head I refuse to count your sins against you. I refuse to count your sins against you. And instead I endeavor to keep you in right standing. with me even when you jacob deserve the consequences of your disobedience of your wickedness of your sin of your dullness i god refuse to count your sins against you i refuse it i'm not even entertaining the thought of ah you deserve it 
it, uh, it must be reckoned to you. I do not think like that. I refuse to count your sins against you. Instead, I'm busy trying to help you understand that you have a right standing with me. Do you know how, how, how freeing that could be if we actually got that? Do you know how much we struggle with guilt? Where is it? Romans 4.8 talks about it. Romans 4.8, first in Psalm 32 or somewhere, it says, Blessed is he whose sin is not imputed to uh, him by God. And then Romans 4.8, Paul takes the same principle and he says two things in Romans 4, 8, 7 and 8. He says, on one hand, God imputes to me his holiness. On the other hand, he does not impute to me my sin. He refuses it. He does not reckon my sins against me. Most ministries that deal with healing and all first reckon your sins against you. It is not from the nature of God. It might work, but it ain't the nature of God. There is a place where sin needs to be dealt with, but God doesn't think of that first. This is not cheap grace. You know I'm not a cheap grace speaker. But this is the nature of God. While he does this, while he chooses not, while he refuses to count my sins against me, and while he endeavors to keep me in right standing with him, he's also expecting me to return. And he's hoping that I can't bear the condition of broken fellowship. He's hoping that Jacob is so desperate for me because he's missing me that he'll come running back to me. See, the thing with the prodigal father and the prodigal son was, the prodigal son, both the brothers thought that they didn't have a relationship and they didn't have fellowship with their father. The father knew the relationship was intact. All he was looking was for the fellowship to be restored. The relationship never gets broken. Never gets broken. I pray God that some of these statements will liberate your heart. Because otherwise, man, God is a song and a dance before you get anywhere close to him. Hey, I've been doing this for 27, 28 years. It still hasn't sunk in. Because none of our relationships are like this. If it ain't your parent or your father, it's your spouse or your sibling or your pastor or your mentor or, or, or your someone who will bring this cycle alive. And yet one of us needs to, two of us need to, 70 of us need to stand and say, hey, there's a different way. Third, I love this one. I will not cause you to live in the fear of my anger or my withdrawal of love. I will not cause you to live in the fear of my anger. As in, hey Jacob, you've got to stop thinking that you have to be afraid of my anger. I will not cause that to happen. I, 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 I didn't know how to word it. I will not cause you. I will not cause you. That if you are ever afraid of my anger because of something you've done, then it ain't me. And you never have to live in the fear of the withdrawal of my love. That's a lie that you may have preached, Jacob, but it's still a lie. I will not allow my love to be withdrawn. I will not allow you to live in the fear of my anger. 1 John 4.18 Wherever there is fear, there is torment. And it ain't from God. Any questions, any thoughts? Hey, you may have heard this before. I know everybody knows First John 4.18, but r try to wrap 
your heart around it so that you can live without the fear of his anger lashing out and without the fear of his love being withdrawn. Any questions? Any thoughts? The next one. I've given myself wholeheartedly to you, holding nothing back. I've given myself wholeheartedly to you, holding nothing back. I've given myself wholeheartedly to you, holding nothing back. There's nothing I'm not going to give you. There's nothing I'm holding back. There's nothing. You don't need to think that you can't get everything that I am from I am. From, <laughs> from I am. Uh, Romans 8.33. He who gave his son, will he not freely give us all things? And oh, by the way, I live in you and uh, you live in me. I actually, I, God, actually live in you and you live in me. I do not hold back anything from you, Jacob. I do not hold back anything from you, Jacob. My house is open, my life is open. Jesus at one point said it this way in Matthew eleven twenty-seven in the message. This unique father-son intimacy that I have, Jesus said, I'm willing to go over it line by line with anyone who is interested. Because whatever you have given me, I will give them. There is no limit to how far you and I can plumb the depths of God's heart and God's mind. What does it mean when, has it ever happened to you? Perhaps your spouse may have said it to you when you got married. All that I am and all that I have. Hi? pledge to you that is where do you think that came from from your spouse no a pastor wrote those lines for her where did the pastor get it from from the bible where did the bible get it from from god who is basically saying all that i am and all that i have i pledge to you It's way too earth-shaking, man. It's very hard to wrap our minds around it. So let it sink somewhere else like the spirit and then slowly begin to feel perhaps the emotion of it and process it in terms of your thinking so that you change. Because if you're trying to understand this, there ain't no human model for this, man. You won't be able to understand it. My God, sometimes it is irritating when you try to understand these things with your head because it ain't going to work. Because we don't have apples and oranges to compare it to. I love this line. Because you're my temple and because I live in you, I still, the, I still bear the brunt of your collision with sin. Because, I, because you, Jacob, are my temple and because I live in you, I still bear the brunt of, the, of your collision with sin because it is my spirit that is violated and it is my dwelling that is defiled. I found that very sad, eh? That he thinks like that. Because you are my temple and because I live in you, I still bear the brunt of your collision with sin because it is my spirit who is violated and it is my dwelling that is defiled. 1 Corinthians 
Don't you know that you are my dwelling place? James chapter 4, verse 5. Don't you know that my spirit yearns jealously over you? I mean, is that your phone? Is that your phone? No. As long as it's not yours, I'm okay. Yeah, because you're my temple and I live in you, I still bear the brunt of your collision with sin because it violates my spirit and defiles my dwelling place. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, James 4, 5. Listen to this one. I can be grieved... Displeased. I can be grieved, displeased, exploited, defied, and hurt by you. I can be grieved, displeased, exploited, defied, and be hurt by you. But I never condemn you. And I will never lash out in anger at you. But I will never condemn you. And I will never lash out in anger at you. Imagine if you as a parent could grant this to your children. That you can hurt me. You can defy me. That you can grieve me. You can displease me. That you can't take advantage and exploit me. But after all that, I will still not condemn you as in judge and sentence. I will still not lash out in anger at you. What kind of safety does this God give man? If this is the kind of God he is, if this is the kind of father he is. The other great thing that will happen if you begin to understand this is sin won't have a long-term hold on us. Very often when we sin, we stay there for ages because we don't know how to go back to God. The prodigal son could have gone back pretty soon, man. As soon as his wealth got over, he should have gone back. Nope. He went through wealth getting over, then borrowing from the citizens of the land, then losing that, then went and hung out with the pigs for a while, ate the food of pigs, and then finally came to his senses. You come to your senses faster when you realize the kind of father you have. I don't know why we've developed such an unhealthy fear of God. Yeah, but you would think it would change, but it hasn't changed. Either it's super cheap grace, where God is your buddy-buddy, or it's this other God and there's nothing in between. Our pastors are mainly responsible for this. And Sunday school teachers. Don't leave them out. My God. There'll be a special line for Sunday school teachers in heaven. Really. And, and as they're walking through that corridor in heaven, there'll be Jonah's whale coming to eat them up. Daniel's lion. No, I'm just kidding. All the things that they frighten kids with, 
I'm just kidding. This is not a scene from heaven. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about Sunday school teachers that I have experienced. Yeah. The one, the Sunday school teachers at Acts 29, my God, man, they're like angels. Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, that, I, I went down a rabbit trail. I didn't need to go down. Okay. My love is jealous and my spirit wages war against the devil over you. My love is jealous. God, this is something else you need to know. Because very often we think, has God set me free? Did God take care of the situation? Has God dealt with the devil? Has he broken that bondage? And here is the response. And it's from James chapter 4. He says, my, I want you to know that my love is jealous. As in when someone else has his tentacles in you. When someone else has his foot in your house. When someone else has entered into the recesses of your mind and heart. My heart is jealous. I'm a possessive God who is not controlling. But my God, I can be possessive about you. And because I'm possessive, my spirit wages war against Satan over you. My spirit wages war against Satan over you. When you call out to God to be set free, you must know that he goes into action just because he is a jealous God. One of the saddest and happiest scenes in the Bible is Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 where uh, this man who knew the presence of God like nobody else is hiding behind a bush with his wife. That is sad. But then there's a sadder scene that is so brilliant where you hear the voice of God saying, Adam, where are you? That is how he still is. Adam, Adam, where are you? And it's not that God doesn't know where he is. But it is a cry that's coming from his heart saying, Adam, where are you? We don't think he is like this anymore. When we sin and hide, it's almost like, now I got to go back and find him. And just the thought of waking up next morning and going to him and doing the whole routine that depending on how long you've been a Christian could take five minutes or 20 minutes. Such a painful exercise. And we forget that there is someone who's going around saying, Adam, where are you? And it was a cry eh, that came from God. And it gave Adam the courage to whisper from behind the bush. Because he was so afraid. And so, when your actions have consequences, I'm there with a toolkit. I remember um, having to fix that painting that you guys gave me, and there was Mark with his toolkit. Anytime there's repair work to be done or there's a consequence, God is there with his tool belt and toolkit. He's there before you even know the mess you've created. And his usual question is, where are you? 
when you're feeling dirty and guilty, when your sin makes you feel dirty or guilty, I'm there with water. When you resent me, I'm there with persistent kindness. When you're dull to my presence, I'm there in blazing light. As I was in Genesis 3.9, where I went looking for him and I said, Adam, where are you? Sometimes I wish I had oratorial skills that could take you to this crescendo. Adam, where are you? And all of you will start weeping and stuff like that. But unfortunately, that's not how we change, right? We change because something happens inside us. Emotion will only get you so far, man. John Francisco sings this song called Adam, Where Are You? It's a beautiful song. Here's another line, guys. I'm incapable of hurting you, failing you, ignoring you, or rejecting you. This is God speaking, eh? I'm incapable of hurting you. I'm incapable of failing you. I'm even incapable of ignoring you. And I'm incapable of rejecting you. Do you know that I was the one who drew you to Jesus? It's odd how whenever we talk about getting saved, we say, and then I found Jesus. No. <laughs> John 6, 44 says that the Father draws people unto Jesus so that you can see Jesus and be saved and be drawn back to the Father. Odd, eh? He draws you to his son so that you can see his son and receive him so that you can be drawn back to the father. I am incapable of hurting you. I'm incapable of ignoring you, of rejecting you, of failing you. I'm incapable of it. I love this next line because I used to struggle with this for years. My love comes first. My love comes first and precedes discipline. My love comes first and precedes discipline. I don't discipline to punish you. I discipline to instruct you, change you, prevent you from destroying or prevent you from being destroyed. I'll write it down. My love comes first. It precedes discipline. My love comes first. It precedes discipline. My love comes first. It precedes discipline. I don't punish you through discipline. I do not punish you. Take away the fear of punishment. Take away the fear of punishment. God does not punish me. Why, Jacob? Because all the punishment is obviously poured on Jesus. For God to punish me again for the things that Jesus was already punished for is a repudiation of Jesus' sacrifice. I don't discipline to punish you. I discipline to instruct you, change you, Prevent you from destroying things. And prevent you from being destroyed. 
why I keep saying I've gone over this eight times and stuff like that is, guys, after going over it eight times in the last two days, I still don't have it fully embedded inside my spirit. I so badly want this because I want to be walk. I want to have the freedom to walk in God with Him as the kind of Father that you can make your home in, and walk in waist deep water, water or the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that you're absolutely taken care of. That these demons that have been planted in our heads through teaching, through our own experiences, will not rise up in the middle of a storm because it so hollows you out. Any questions? Okay, next one. I've just got another three or four, so we might finish on time. I know you've heard this before, at least the guys who've been here for a while have heard this before. You are the object of my extravagant delight, the target of my reckless love. And by reckless, I mean that which is not calculated, that which is foolish, that which is vulnerable and ready to get hurt, that which is not measured. And you are the focus of my laughter-filled favor. And favor, if it can be earned, is an oxymoron. Just this one sentence alone will change your life if you and I actually believe it. And I'm the object of his extravagant delight. But Jacob, what about when you do wrong? Go back to the other points before that. But Jacob and I, go back to the other points before that. Take this whole thing. Take some clay and make a God. Oh, sorry, it sounds like I'm um, espousing idolatry. What I'm saying is, take the clay of what has been presented and remake the face of God because the face of God that we perhaps have is inaccurate. I'm the object of his extravagant delight. I'm the daily target of his reckless love. I'm the daily target of his reckless love. And I'm the center focus of his laughter-filled favor. I must include laughter there, of his laughter-filled favor. This is a God who refuses to reckon or count my sins against me. He refuses to credit the very real sins that I have defiantly committed. He refuses to count those sins or credit those sins against me. He refuses it. Instead, he is attempting to help me understand that my relationship with you is intact. Come, restore your broken fellowship. May you ache because you miss me. This next one is mind-blowing. He does it as soon as you're born again. As soon as you're born again. I placed in you 
the Abba cry so that you could instinctively be intimate with me. The moment you're born again, Galatians 4, 6, the spirit that I have given you, and you get the spirit the day you're born again, the spirit that I have given you is not a spirit of fear. It is not a spirit that subjects you to becoming a slave again, but it's a spirit of sonship. And from within you begins to rise the Abba cry. It's instinctive and it is meant for intimacy. And when that instinctive Abba cry is replaced by Lordship uh, and, and other things, Savior, Lord, and you miss out on the Father aspect of God, gosh, man. It's an instinctive cry. It's like that boy there, Daniel. Instinctive cry. I choose not to remember since we have dealt with and I don't use it as a filter when I deal with you. I choose not to remember the sins we have dealt with. I love the fact that he says we have dealt with as in me going and talking to him and he coming and talking about it back. Because confession is really not uh, going telling God that you have sinned. He knows that. It's talking about it. It's having a conversation about Ah, Chuck's father, this is what happened, and I did this. And it's this. And so he says, I choose not to remember the sins we have dealt with. And I never use it as a filter in future communication. I never use it as a filter. I don't go plonk, he had done this before 84 times. No, I, I don't use it as a filter. What an amazing God this is. I will use it as a filter. He won't. I will use it as a filter to judge you and judge myself. But Father, I did this last time. Do you think I'll make it this time? Or Sue has done this before. Will she do it again? That's how I will think. But this ain't God, man. This is why you can see now why 1 Corinthians 13 takes on new meaning. Where it is, love keeps no record of wrongs. I'll, I'll give away... Um, one of the punchlines right away. The problem is, this is the love that I receive from God. This is the love that I have to show you. That just messes things up. I wish it was just between God and me. But now I'm supposed to behave this way with you also. But we'll deal with that another day. Enough is it, enough is it good that we have today. Yeah. Listen to this next one. Uh, the scripture reference for the last one was Psalm 103 verse 12. Uh, all the scriptures are given on top of your page anyways. L listen to this. This is a problem many of us have here. Despite what you think, I don't stand by silently as bad things happen to you. Despite what you think, I don't stand silently as bad things happen to you. It's so natural for me to work on your behalf, even if it costs me the world. It is so natural for me to work on your behalf, even if it costs me the world. Despite what you think, I don't stand by silently when you go through bad things. It's natural for me to work on your behalf even if it costs me the world. Let me read you out scripture without giving you the reference. Listen to these words, eh? 
when you're in over your head, this is God speaking. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. Because I'm God, your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich Kush and uh, Seba thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade creation just for you. So don't be afraid. I'm with you. Just listen to that, eh? That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade creation just for you. So don't be afraid. Isaiah 43, verse 2 to 4. Isaiah 43, 2 to 4. Okay, two more points. I know you know this, but listen to it. The love with which I love my son is how I love you. Hey, Jacob, yeah, Lord. The love with which I love my son is the love that I have for you. The love with which I love my son is the way I love you, Jacob. The love with which I love my son is the way I love you, Jacob. Oh, and by the way, I love my son perfectly. The love with which I love my son is the way I love you. And by the way, I love my son perfectly. John 15, 9. The love with which he loves his son is the way he loves me. Oh, and by the way, he loves his son perfectly. Here's another line that puts things in perspective. You see yourself as a failure or a success. I see you as a precious son or daughter who is either being faithful or faithless. You see yourself as a failure or a success. I see you as a precious son or daughter who is either being faithful or faithless. And every time you repent of your faithlessness, I move you from glory to glory, strength to strength, faith to faith. You see yourself as a success or a failure. Those are the two places you live in. Either I did well and I was successful, or I didn't do well, I'm a failure, or I'm mediocre, I'm average. People look at you that way, you look at yourself that way. I see you as a precious son or daughter. It's inviolable. Who is either being faithful or faithless. And every time, Jacob, you turn from your faithlessness, I move you from strength to strength or glory to glory. Let me end. If you want to thrive in a decaying world that is still under the sway of the prince of the power of the air or of the devil, as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 2. If you want to thrive, not survive. Surviving anyone can do. If you want to thrive in a decaying world that is still under the sway of the enemy, then it's impossible without resting securely in the Father's love. There's this amazing scripture in Deuteronomy 33, verse 12, where it's a promise over Benjamin. And here's what the word says about Benjamin. Benjamin will rest securely between the shoulders of God in his love. I love that, eh? It has so many different connotations. Benjamin will rest securely between the shoulders of God's love. So it could either mean that 
he will rule from between the shoulders of God's love because the shoulders represent government. Or it could mean like when your kid is on your shoulder and you have your arms wrapped around him, that Benjamin will rest securely in God's love between his shoulders. Deuteronomy 33, 12. Once you rest securely in the Father's love between his shoulders, my God, man, there's nothing that can shake. And then it doesn't matter whether you're going through waist-deep water or death valley. You will walk without sight in happy faith. You will walk without sight in happy faith. There's faith and there's sad faith and then there's happy faith. Faith is just faith. Sad faith is, oh, I'm just holding on. When will God come through? And then there's happy faith which just doesn't even talk about faith. Because it's so convinced of God's amazing, secure love. Questions? Thoughts? Disagreements? Challenges? Is anything I said not biblical? Nothing, man. No angel, no demon. No nothing living nor dead. Neither today nor tomorrow. No high, no low. No thinkable or unthinkable can prevent God's love from getting through to me. Nothing can stop it. Psalm 26 verse 3 puts it this way in the message. Psalm 26 verse 3. Psalm 26 3. I never lose sight of your love, but I keep in step with it, never missing a beat, reliant on your faithfulness. I never lose sight of your love. I never lose sight of your love. Having said all this, now begins the real work. And what is the real work? To, you know, the strange thing is, in Matthew eleven twenty-seven, Jesus says, I'll teach you about the Father's love. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, Jesus Christ will teach you about the Father's love. So even the teaching is left to him. He will show you. All that is left to me is having heard the truth about the Father's love. Can I not take my eyes off? This father that has been presented here today. Can I not look at all the other relationships I may have had in life that contradict this? Can I just not take my eyes off? Psalm 26 verse 3. I never lose sight of your love. I keep in step with you. I never miss a beat. And I'm reliant on your faithfulness. Amazing, eh? How David could come up with stuff. I never lose sight of your love. I don't miss a beat. I'm reliant on your faithfulness. And 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. I was so relieved to know that Jesus is the one who will instruct me into the Father's love. I was so pleased to know that Jesus is saying, hey, this thing that I have with my father is a unique father-son intimacy. And I will go over line by line with anyone who is interested so that you can also partake in this unique father-son intimacy. So you got two places where God very clearly says, hey, I'll teach you this, man. But Jacob, can you keep your eyes on this? And every time you stray, can you bring your eyes back? This is who the father really is. Any questions, guys? And once, once, once you understand the father like this, you can begin teles telescoping him. If you don't know the Father like this, we are telescoping um, Venus when it's actually Mercury. Because once you know him like this, John 1.18, there is only one who has journeyed into the Father's bosom or Father's heart 
and has shown him for who he is and his name is Christ. And now to that one, you add your name. There is another one who has journeyed into the father's heart and would like to show you what the father is like. Okay, I'm done. Any questions, guys? Anyone want to say anything about this? Oh, one at a time, please. Yeah, man, but please go either read it over and over again or learn it over and over again or listen to it over and over again because it ain't human experience and it must become human experience through you for others. And then at some point we'll deal with how you and I need to be like this to others which is another ball of wax which we won't touch right now. Someone had a question? Who, Don? Go ahead. Hi, Jason, you had a question. Okay. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I said hi to Devraj already. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Don, you're very kind. <laughs> Did your brother put you up to that? No, I saw Devraj and his wife walk in. And I said hello to them already. Well, thanks for being so caring. So let's pray. I love it when you get embarrassed. Because yeah. it's usually your brother who gets it, but this time it was you. Yeah. Father, sometimes I wish there were these syringes that you could just poke us with and then you just get a direct like download and everything changes. That would be so amazing, but I don't know why you didn't think of that, Father. But uh, since we don't have that option open, we'll have to consider these things. And I just want to leave us with those two last uh, um, sentences that Jesus, you are willing to go over this with us. I'll just read out that scripture uh, so that we hear it from your mouth. It's from the message, Jesus. Just one sec. Matthew 11... 27. Jesus resumed talking to people, but now tenderly. The Father has given me all these things to do and say, this is a unique father-son operation, coming out of father and son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. And so we respond saying, we are willing to listen. Oh God, teach us your Father. We want to learn your Father so that we can rest secure between his shoulder blades. His love like you did where you made yourself home in your Father's love when he walked the earth. And then despite what may be ravaging my mind, my soul, my body, I will know that, oh my God, I'm secure. He is not being silent or inactive. He is moving heaven and earth on my behalf. And that sounds like a cliche, but it's not because you said it in Isaiah 43, verse 2 to 4. And then one last scripture, 
it's in second thessalonians 3 5 second thessalonians 3 5 It doesn't matter which version we read it from, Father, but here's what it says. May the Master, as in your Son Jesus, take you by the hand, as in take us by the hand, and lead you along the path of God's love and Christ's endurance. And Ivy, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. May the Lord direct your hearts. So Jesus, I'm praying on behalf of all of us here, anyone else who listens to this, I just pray that would you direct our hearts into the Father's love and into your ability to persist and to persevere. Grant us this. It is in your will. It is for your sake. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.